This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Monday, the 11th of May, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, we're talking about two serious health issues today. First up, we're speaking to Suicide Prevention Australia about the need for a suicide register nationally and what that means for Australia's suicide crisis. And Joanna Fletcher from Women's Legal Service Victoria speaking to us about family violence and what they're seeing and not seeing in the community during the COVID-19 lockdown. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Monday the 11th of May. As restrictions across the country are beginning to ease, health officials are warning that Australians should prepare for a second wave of new infections. Although this second wave is not a certainty, other countries that have eased restrictions are now experiencing it. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nick Coatsworth has said that Australia is entering into a difficult period and Australians must continue social distancing if they wish to avoid a spike in infections. Queensland students in kindergarten and years 1, 11 and 12 are returning to school today. All other students are expected to return on May 25th. Social distancing restrictions, such as the one and a half metre rule, will not be enforced in schools, but there will be a strict hand-washing regime. Students in New South Wales have also begun returning to school today. The state is doing a staggered approach to school return, with all students expected back by the end of Term 2. Most students will only be in school for one day a week over the next two weeks. Year 12s are the exception. They will be in school for three to four days a week. Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan yesterday announced his state will be entering into the second stage of easing restrictions on the 18th of May. Western Australians will be allowed to meet up in groups of 20, pubs and restaurants will reopen and restrictions on movement within the state are being lessened. But interstate travel is still not possible as the hard border will remain in place for at least another nine weeks. Victoria will start easing its restrictions from midnight tomorrow, allowing five visitors into homes. Premier Daniel Andrews says common sense should still be used, so people shouldn't be having dinner parties every night. Victorian schools will also be able to reopen before the end of Term 2. It was previously thought schools would be closed for the entirety of the term. The World Health Organisation is dismissing allegations they withheld information about COVID-19 at China's request. WHO Chief Tedros Adhanom says the organisation did not delay in telling national leaders about the first reports of human-to-human spread. A German weekly newspaper published the allegations alongside quotes from Germany's intelligence agency, saying the delay in information made them lose six weeks in their fight against the virus. English Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing backlash from the opposition of the leaders of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland over his announcement easing restrictions into the United Kingdom. People in the United Kingdom will be allowed to go outside for leisure activities and the government's stay-at-home slogan was changed to stay alert. The governments of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are urging people to remain at home and not take advantage of the lessened restrictions. 
Three senior members of American President Donald Trump's COVID-19 task force will now be working from home amid fears they were exposed to the disease. Infectious diseases expert Dr Anthony Fauci, director of the CDC Dr Robert Redfield and head of the FDA Stefan Hahn are now all in quarantine. This announcement comes as Americans push to reopen the economy despite having a case total over 1.3 million and a death toll around 80,000. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We're talking about some really heavy topics today, including suicide and family violence. If you're triggered by this and need help, there are resources available. You can go to joy.org.au slash support. Lifeline is on 13 11 14. The Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467 and... 1-800-RESPECT, the National Family Violence Hotline and website. Last Friday, I spoke with Neves Murray, the CEO of Suicide Prevention Australia, about their call for a national suicide register. I started the interview by mangling the first question and asking it a second time. What are you calling on the government to do? Good question. Uh, So, look, I I think um, one of the things that uh, we're starting to hear a lot about um, and a lot of conversations are being had is uh, around the fact that the distress caused by um, the implications of COVID-19, such as job loss, uh, some of the issues around uh, relationships um, and certainly um, financial distress are heightening um, the anxiety in our broader community. Um, and so there's there's a lot of packages uh, that the government has put out to support um, our community in relation to that. They're short-term and they very much are a response to specific stresses. What we're calling on the government to do is not to um, fall into the trap of um, uh, writing policy on the run, which uh, on a topic as emotive that impacts our community so deeply as, as suicide does, um, it's, it's, I suppose, a risk factor that the government will respond in a fashion that um, is uh, a knee-jerk reaction to the situation. What we're calling on government to do is take a very methodical approach to the um, uh, the um, um, initiatives that they implement uh, during COVID-19 to ensure that they're sustainable for people beyond um, the pandemic. The other thing we're calling on government to do, and um, uh, what, what your listeners will be very surprised to hear, that we don't have a national suicide register as an example. And the reason why that's important is uh, we've watched uh, how the government has controlled uh, the uh, spread of COVID-19 by utilising readily timely data, data that is available every single day. We're seeing the state jurisdictions collaborating to share that data. We're seeing all agencies putting in that data together so that we can identify and respond to where the outbreaks are. Your listeners, I'm sure, will be surprised and alarmed to know that we don't have a similar uh, repository for data um, for suicide. And it takes up to two years for us to to get... um, data around suicide because it gets caught in um, coronial inquiries. And to add to that, the jurisdictions, each state jurisdiction has a different way of collecting data and it's not shared nationally. 
So we're calling for immediate action on getting suicide data um, out into the into the uh, into the hands of the people who need it to make good decisions, timely decisions that will save lives. As we've seen the government do, the collaboration um, across government with COVID-19, well, we've seen it can be done, so let's do it with suicide prevention. And what would having a national suicide register um, accomplish? Look, it will give us um, information around where there are potential uh, clusters, where there are emerging issues, um, and it means that you can target funding more directly and more specifically uh, to areas of need. It will also help us identify whether there's any uh, what's called social determinants, any any um, extraneous um, situations that are affecting a particular community, such as, for example, a downturn in industry um, or, or you know, s- some other issues, some um, housing, housing stress as an example, um, that then allows government to identify uh, policy reform that they need to address in particular areas. In your media release, you're predicting a large increase in suicides. Is that correct or is, how, would you, how would you term that? Look, there has been some um, data, some modelling done by the University of Sydney that was released yesterday um, indicating that there, there could potentially be an increase of between 25 and 50% um, in the number of people who die by suicide. Um, the numbers indicate um, you know, that up to 1,500 additional people could die by suicide every year. But we would caution the government on reacting to that because that data is circumstantial. It's uh, a narrow sample set and it's taken from very much um, the lens of mental health. Um, And what we do know for certain is that um, a very significant proportion of people who die by suicide have never touched the mental health sector. So so there's a number of uh, cautionary statements that we've made around that data. Um, because we can't, that, that data hasn't been verified, it hasn't been peer-reviewed. Um, it, it is very much based on a, a series of assumptions and then extrapolated. How do you reach people who aren't connected to the mental health system in any way? Yeah, look, uh, we, we, um, we can identify other stressors. So we can identify, and um, we've done a significant amount of research in this area, um, there are certain uh, areas of life that create um, such significant distress for people uh, that may not tip them into having a mental health issue, but they are very distressed. And those things are uh, things such as job loss, Financial distress, for example, um, people who have, um, uh, you know, high high debt, um, housing uh, affordability, and relationship breakdown. They're, they're the key ones uh, that have been identified. And often those people don't touch the mental health system because they don't have a prolonged uh, issue with depression or anxiety. It's more, you know, a compounding distressor that... Um, Uh, leads them to think that uh, the world will be better off without them.
Yeah. So there's, there's, there's touch points, right? And that's that's why we call on a, a whole of government, a whole of community approach. There's touch points. Um, you know, I think um, most of us have done C- CPR training, but not uh, many of us have done CPR training for someone's mental health, right? Um, and and there's, there's certainly programs available that the, the whole community can do um, that will provide a, a network of safety for people. Uh, but there's also a known um, uh, government departments that are, are touched by people in distress. If you think about someone who loses their, their job, um, you know, that they will go to Centrelink. So how are we training frontline Centrelink work, link workers, for example, to be able to identify somebody who has um, such a level of distress at not having a job that they could be in suicidal crisis? So we don't train our frontline people at points of contact that those people in suicidal crisis might um, access services. Uh, and that's what we're calling on government to do, not to just react react um, to the pandemic, but to actually step back, have a look at where um, people who may be in suicidal distress touch the system, make sure that the people at the front line have what we call gatekeeper training so that they can be identified and then the supports put around them. It it reminds me, I've seen a, a Centrelink RoboDebt letter and they actually include the lifeline phone number in yeah. the body of the letter and it's sort of an acknowledgement of this is <laughs> this may be extremely traumatic for you and we know that, but we're going ahead with this process. It um, absolutely just it blew my mind when I saw that. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's some there's some awareness, but it's you know you're you're asking for a, like an additional burden. Um, and well, you, you look. That's right. I think I think that that's the point. That there, there is those. Um, you see some uh, uh, recognition and acknowledgement that um, these things do cause distress. Um, by the same token, the reactions they're not um, a methodical approach by government, and you can understand why that might happen because it's a very um, uh, challenging topic, a very complex topic, right? So you can understand that the government reacts and responds quickly. Uh, but what we're saying is that there is a much better way of dealing with this in a sustainable way, and that's to look at the systems and implement systemic change. We've seen we've seen um, there's some international models that um, point to how it can make a difference. For example, Japan and Ireland have implemented some very significant um, cross-government collaborations that mean that every section of government has to run a suicide lens over their policies and the impact on people's uh, risk of suicide. Um, that's what we're saying to government. It's got to be a whole of government. There needs to be a central point and the, the, the government needs to hold everyone to account to ensure that we're running. You know, we run the uh, workplace health and safety lens over everything. We're saying run the suicide lens over things when you're making policy decisions such as, for example, the amount of new start or what happens with uh, stamp, housing stamp duties um, in every state, what happens when you let a contract, a contract, um, a construction contract out. So we're saying there's lots of other, other ways other than through the mental health system to address the issue of suicide. And you know, governments have the more than the capacity to do that. If we look at um, legislation in Victoria, every time a piece is introduced into Parliament, there's a there's a little statement with the compatibility against the uh, Charter of Human Rights. So 
you know, governments have that ability to run legislation through that lens. So why not, you know, a second one? Exactly. And and that's certainly um, another challenge that we have each state because we currently mm. have suicide prevention sitting in the health portfolio. Um, each state does something quite different to the next state. Um, and that, uh, you know, it's interesting because we watch what's happened with COVID-19 and the um, intense level of collaboration between the states um, and the Commonwealth and every section of government um, to drive and contain uh, the numbers of people in infected by COVID. And, uh, you know, you, uh, we look on jealously in the suicide prevention sector because, you know, for, for us to have access to data in that fashion would mean that we could respond in a very methodical way, like we have seen governments do with COVID-19. Mm. Um, so we know we can do it. We've seen it. We've seen it in action. We have the tools, we have the wherewithal, um, and we have the appetite when things are sufficiently uh, critical. We're saying suicide prevention is critical um, and it requires a different approach to the approach that we've taken in the past. That was Neves Murray from Suicide Prevention Australia. If you're triggered by this and need help, there are resources again on joy.org.au slash support. Lifeline is on 13 11 14. The Suicide Callback Service is on 1300 659 467 and 1-800-RESPECT, the National Family Violence Hotline. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. It's been known for a long time that there's a massive problem with family violence across the country. I asked Women's Legal Service CEO Joanna Fletcher about what they're seeing in the community. What we're not seeing is probably the, the thing that worries us a bit is we're not seeing a peak in, in calls to our service or in calls to Victoria Police or to family violence services. Uh, and that's very much expected in terms of uh, in disasters. We know that there's, a, there's an increase in family violence. And as you probably know, there's been a 75% increase in searches on Google uh, in relation to family violence. But we're not yet seeing uh, a peak in calls to us. Um, we think that that is uh, definitely not because there is no need, uh, but rather because, you know, if women are in a home uh, with a, a perpetrator of violence and they're also trying to manage their own safety and their children's safety, it's very difficult for them to reach out for help. And particularly, most of our services are very phone-based, mm -hmm. uh, which can be, you know, particularly difficult to do uh, when you're in the home with someone. What sort of services are available? Well, there are services that, you know, respond to women's sort of welfare and housing needs. Uh, there are also obviously legal services, which is why we're, we're speaking today. And I guess the first thing I would say uh, to any uh, people experiencing violence listening to your program is that if you are at immediate risk, do call triple zero. Uh, the police uh, will respond. Uh, and there are some additional services available during um, COVID-19, including more accommodation that the state government has made available and more services from family violence outreach services. Um, in terms of legal services, uh, your local legal centre um, is a great place to start. Victoria Legal Aid also has a helpline and, and usefully at this point in time, they also have a web chat function, which mm. many women find easier to use. Uh, and of course, our service at Women's Legal Service Victoria, uh, we provide a, a phone line two nights a week that's, that's really a specialist line uh, with our lawyers having a, a really deep understanding of, um, of violence and how to 
address the legal issues arising from that. We know that uh, family violence is often highest on uh, Sunday evenings. You've been together mm. with your, your partner for the entire weekend and, you know, it, it's just a trigger point for some people. This is like the longest Sunday night ever. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is the longest Sunday night ever. And, and certainly um, globally, um, organisations have seen an increase in in violence, uh, uh, in family violence and in calls to services. Um, and what we think that is about is that obviously many countries that are in the world are ahead of us in terms of their, uh, their lockdown um, mm-hmm. and in terms of um, also starting to come out of their lockdown where it might be easier to call. Uh, but you're spot on. I mean, the issue of, of being um, cooped up in a home uh, with with someone who, who uses violence is, um, is, is pretty appalling and uh, it's obviously uh, making things quite difficult for women to get in touch with services. If you're somebody that needs to escape a situation fairly urgently, what can you do? You know, if you don't want to call the police or can you go to a friend's house or what sort of options? You certainly can uh, go to a friend's house. One of the things that we are saying to women is to think about the the activities that are clearly permitted um, under the restrictions, such as being able to go out for exercise or to shop or to the pharmacy um, and, you know, take that opportunity to call services. Um, Certainly Safe Steps, which is the 24-7 service uh, to respond to family violence, is a good option because it is available um, every hour of the day Mm -hmm. uh, and that organisation can provide referrals to to support uh, whether you end up leaving the relationship or leaving the home on that occasion or not. Uh, so they're a very useful resource. How quick is the response if you're in an acute situation from an organization like Safe Steps? Do you have to go on a waiting uh, list or? You know? No, I, no, I understand that now uh, with, with additional resourcing from the state government, they are able to respond to most calls that come their way in a fairly, fairly quickly. Um, the, the challenge for them is that, you know, they really do spend time with um, people experiencing violence to find out what risk they're at. So this isn't just a quick five minutes, you know, how are you going and and make a quick referral. This is actually about doing a really thorough assessment of the person's risk. Um, So a a response in terms of a phone response, women will get fairly quickly. Certainly in normal circumstances, finding um, accommodation is a a problem as as with all social housing um, in Victoria, there's very limited um, stock available. Uh, But as I said, at the moment, there has been an increase in resourcing to allow um, people experiencing violence to access um, safe accommodation. Are people who are non-binary or trans able to access women's legal services? Absolutely, yes. What are the latest statistics on family violence? Well, we know that there are about 80,000 calls to Victoria Police in relation to family violence. Uh, in terms of the sort of national picture, uh, we know that at least 360,000 women experience violence um, in any one year. Uh, so the numbers are, are pretty horrific. Uh, you'll also be familiar with the, the terrible statistic that uh, uh, every week uh, a woman is killed in a family violence situation Mm. And around one in four women have experienced violence in intimate partner relationships. Uh, so those, some of those numbers have remained unchanged for quite some time. I was speaking with uh, 
<clears throat> the CEO of Suicide Prevention Australia, and they're calling for a national suicide register because the data that they're getting is quite delayed from often coronial findings or yes. you know cultural interpretations or taboos about suicide. Where are you getting your statistics about deaths? Uh, there's some analysis by, uh, now I'm going to get the name wrong, but the, the main uh, uh, criminology uh, researchers in uh, New South Wales. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also, in terms of deaths, though, you're quite right, that, that um, data is very delayed. So we have a, a special coronial process in Victoria uh, called Family Violence Death Reviews, and they actually do review family violence deaths for I guess, systems changes that might stop those deaths occurring in the future. But because the coroner is understandably concerned about having those um, inquiries happen in a way that might uh, compromise a police investigation, they're mm. often very delayed after the actual deaths have occurred. So uh, in terms of deaths, yes, the, um, the data comes very late. Um, in terms of other, um, in other issues such as police call-outs, Obviously, we get that information fairly quickly, and the Crime Statistics Agency in Victoria is really good in relation to that and has some really um, solid data that you can access relatively uh, soon after the time period. Joanna Fletcher from Women's Legal Service Victoria. If you're experiencing or perpetrating family violence, there's a national service. It's 1-800-RESPECT, and their website is 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. There's also Men's Line on 1300 78 99 78. There are other resources available, and you can find their contact details on the web at joy.org.au slash support. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Good as head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling?
Lizzo with her song Good As Hell, which always puts me in a happy place. I hope that's been helping you. It's been a pretty heavy show today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Potts, and we'll be back tomorrow. Mahalo. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.